Welcome to Lift Your Legacy. My name is Jacob Rupp, father, husband, and rabbi. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you unlock your inner potential and create change that will impact the future. Thank you for listening and let's get to it. Ladies and gentlemen, you know that I'm always someone that believes very strongly in, in mentors and how crucial mentors are and being able to bounce ideas off of someone that's kind of been there and seen it. And uh, I am thrilled to have on one of my mentors, someone who's been a very close friend of mine, has really done tremendous things for me in terms of my self-esteem, in terms of my career. Um, and uh, it's not his first rodeo. He's uh, a, a three-decade entrepreneur in, in multiple areas. He's literally been around the world. He's He and his family are very fundamental in each community in which they go in terms of not only just for the um, entrepreneurial community and for what he does with his business, but how he and his wife and his kids impact their community, um, build institutions, maintain institutions, and help everybody uh, from a place of tremendous service. Um, I'm very excited to have on my guest, uh, Mike Aaron, and uh, to share some of the lessons uh, that he has used in his life with my audience. Uh, we officially named this show a wartime CEO about what it means to have um, the right mindset during difficult times. So I'm thrilled to have that on. To have him on, please uh, take great notes. And one of the things that I'm hoping you will see at this point is that we are extremely focused on living a better life. And one of the most important components of that is getting the direction and the one-on-one -on -one work that you need in order to live better. So I am a strong proponent of coaching. I do a lot of coaching myself, and I would encourage you, if you're listening to this, to please do what many other people have done. Reach out. Let's have a conversation. There's no obligation to you whatsoever uh, to see if we might be a good fit to work together. And if that might not be the case, I would be thrilled to introduce you to any of the multitude of options and networks and people that I know who could provide that help. So again, please reach out via social channels, whatever it might be. I don't think I'm too hard to find. Certainly not, I hope. And, uh, and, and let me know how I could be of benefit to you. Thank you so much. Well, this is fantastic. I am thrilled to have on a, I, I don't know if we put mentor or friend first, but, uh, and brother, I know there's, it's, it's all kind of in that nebulous circle, but someone I've known for many years, looked up to for as long as I've known him, and am, am very excited to have on, on, on the podcast. So I'm thrilled to have on Mike Aaron, who is a, uh, a pillar of the San Diego and many other Jewish communities and business communities. And uh, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for coming today. Well, thank you. It's, uh, it's my pleasure, Rolf, because um, the feelings of friendship and respect are mutual in many, many ways. And uh, whilst uh, you call me a mentor to you in certain aspects, you're a mentor to me in others. So thank God it's a, it's a mutual respect. Great. Thank you. So um, you might be the James Bond of sorts that you sort of parachute in and do all kinds of awesome stuff. But if you could, could you tell us a little bit about where you come from, your background, sort of the, uh, the, the entrepreneurial and geographic journey that you and your family have gone on to get you to the current place? Okay. So, um, born in South Africa and uh, left there 27 years old, having completed my uh, Jewish day schooling there through a wonderful um, Jewish day school system, a school that a school system that encouraged excellence in academic and spirituality and uh, Jewish studies as well as sport. So unlike many uh, Jewish day schools around the world, we actually were fiercely competitive and uh, mostly won most of our leagues. So that um, also brought us with a strong identity of who we were as a people and as a person, it wasn't, uh, nothing was nebulous. Everything was, we understood clearly who we were, what we were, and what we had to do in order to enforce that identity. I then went through the uh, college system where I became a chartered accountant. That's equivalent of the US CPA, but we do law as well. So I did commercial law as well. From there, I went into the South African army and, um, I uh, had two options. Option one was to uh, use our streetwise um, intellect 
let's call it, to um, adjust the system towards our needs, which would have been a very um, easy and lazy two years once we finished basic trading, which was three months. Or alternatively, I felt that I was blessed with a relatively strong physical body and um, resilience. So I decided that uh, a lot of the Jewish younger people weren't in that position. So I decided to become a uh, combat officer, do an officer's course. So in all of my two years, the first year was basic training and officer's training, which allowed me to have some authority to help, um, to help troops, and in particular Jewish troops who uh, felt needed it. So that was a, a fascinating year. In the second part of the year, I um, unfortunately came across a, um, a very difficult anti-Semitic incident from a lieutenant colonel, which involved me physically dealing with him, which uh, landed up in some form of punishment where I was sent to a unit where, even though I was an officer, I was the lowest officer. <laughs> but the good thing about those two years was I learned a tremendous amount about myself, what I'm capable of. They were arguably the best two years that I never want to repeat. And uh, after that, I finished up my articles of apprenticeship with Price Waterhouse and Coopers and Librand in different formats, gained both auditing and investment banking, corporate finance experience. And then I decided at the age of 27, I had nothing to lose, nothing to, uh, I had no assets. The world was my oyster. I was excited and I had a portable profession. And I started my travels and I uh, worked in Australia, I worked in Canada and different parts of the world. I landed up in Canada because I felt that Canada had the best of the US and the best of the British system, being familiar with uh, the British system. And um, I started out, I was lucky enough to get there just as the world was collapsing in 1989-90. And uh, fortunate enough to get a great job with uh, KPMG, big accounting firm, in the turnaround restructuring industry. And there I learned one of my uh, biggest lessons of life. I just arrived in Canada, I knew no one, had very little except for my education and my uh, self-confidence, which probably wasn't founded on reality, but I still had it. And when I had my, um, my interview for with KPMG, the partner in charge, who really I was so enamored by, said, how much do you want to earn? And I gave him a number, which I thought was appropriate considering being a newcomer, etc. And I remember 10 days ago, so 10 days later, he sent me a job offer at more than 25% of what I asked. And after working for eight months in this restructuring environment, I went up to him and I asked him one day, why did you pay me more than I asked? And he said, Mike, you were naive as to your value in the system. And I will never take advantage of anybody that works for me. If you ask me for something that's not worth your value, I will pay your value. If you ask for more than your value, I will still only pay your value. So one thing you should know with me, you don't have to come and ask me for more because what I'm paying you is always going to be fair. And I've taken that lesson through my entire life. Whenever I meet someone who really wants a job or the opportunity, the natural tendency is going to be to ask for less just to get the option, but I'll never pay less. I'll pay what's fair. The same way when someone comes and says, I'm underpaid and I need more, I'll try and explain to them why their value is what they're being paid. So that was one of my first great, great business lessons. I was able to spend three years involved in very complicated restructurings, including people's jewelers, which own sales. And I gained a profile, which was probably not merited, but in any case, it was my opportunity. I went to live in the US and did a restructuring of a larger organization there for a very prominent Canadian family. Um, also learned a lesson from that experience, that family's approach to business, you know, and it's, it's, it's not a judgment, it's just a fact, was um, when you do a deal, if you're doing a deal with the big players, get the best lawyers, so if we have to litigate, we can do it. When you're doing it for small players, who cares about the contract, they're never going to be big enough to litigate us, to sign anything, even if you decide not to honor it. That was a lesson. No judgment. It's just not the way I wanted to play. So after about three years, I, um, two years, like two and a half years, I left that family, good family, just a different style of business to the way I wanted to play. I learned my lessons or I 
I gained my insight from my father and my grandfather and from the KPMG experience. Leave the table always being fair. Leave enough on the table for everybody. I love the mandate of everybody should be equally unhappy with the outcome because then you'll do business with those people for many tens of years to come. So from there, lucky enough to be involved in uh, getting back into Canada. So we left Dallas back to Canada. Um, lucky enough to meet a very, very good, solid family in Toronto um, who were very dominant in the financial services industry, but at the forefront of technology and uh, enjoyed meeting the family. And my partner and I, Adrian, who 25 years later are still partners in different things, um, land up starting a bank on their behalf in the Caribbean, Barbados, um, was able to convince big brand names like Frank Russell Company, Smith Barney to partner with us. And thank God we were able to build the business. Um, the family had a head of their family office who was, didn't display much integrity, misunderstood our, our confidence and our strength of commitment to our confidence and to our ethics. And as a result, we actually bought out the family. We built an institution from there, which you know now has you know a couple of hundred people. It's based in uh, North America, in Canada, and in, and in South Africa and other parts of the world. And uh, that was a great from the start, starting from the beginning. What I learned in that experience is um, always have partners who complement your weaknesses and always be incredibly honest with yourself, what your weaknesses are. And if you aren't sure what they are, ask your wife. She'll quickly remind you in a positive way when you have a loyal and a meaning, meaningful wife of what those weaknesses are. Always look for someone to complement your weaknesses and let your strengths complement theirs. And that's why Adrian and I have been partners for 25 years in all different formats through good and bad times. Um, so we built this oh bank God. and uh, thank God it, it went, sorry. Could I just, could I just. I think you're on mute. Could I stop you? No. Can you hear me? No? Yeah. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Great. Yep, we're good. Hello? Yep, I, yeah. I can hear you. Hello? Okay, go okay. ahead. Okay, great. Yeah, I hear you. Okay. Um, so I, maybe share a little bit. Yep. Please share a little bit about the idea of taking a partner because oftentimes people wonder, do I take a partner? Do I try to hire and instead of sharing equity? So what are some general uh, pieces of advice you would have in terms okay. of finding a business partner to go into something uh, new with? When should I, when should I not? Perfect. And, I, and I, I'm glad you asked me that question because I've probably had in the first time I was an entrepreneur was probably around 24, I'm 58 now, 34 years. I'm probably have been and then still involved in more than 15 partnership relationships, at least. And step number one is, are you a partner personality? I have some colleagues who only ever want to own 100%. They have pride of authorship in everything that they do. And by the way, pride of authorship is not a negative attribute. If it works for you, it works for you. But they have to own 100%. And they often will make the mistake of saying easy money comes from unsophisticated investors. I will bring them in because it's easy money, but I'm never going to be partners with them. I'm just going to take their money. Bad mistake leads to often destruction of the business and litigation. If you're not a partner personality, and you'll know, you'll, you'll know how your marriage works, you'll know how your friendships works, don't take partners. Borrow money, because that's a banker, and you have a defined relationship, but they don't have a say in your business unless you default. If you're a partner personality, which I am, I love to celebrate with people I care for, and if I'm in a battle, or losing, be with people you care for and fight together. That's my personality. So here's the mistakes I made with partners. Is that when you take in a partner, you have to be able to define the reason that you're becoming partners. 
I'm a human person. I'm an EQ person. I sometimes fall in love with my partners in such a fashion that when they stop behaving like partners or when they don't deliver in their role of the partners, I give them too much latitude. And that inevitably leads to a reduction in the outcome of the partnership from a financial perspective. It leads sometimes to anger and resentment. And that's when partnerships fall apart. So always be extremely clear. In our partnership, this is our expectations. Here's your role. You're going to be the operational partner. I'm going to be the strategic partner. I'm going to bring the money. You're going to bring the money. Be extremely clear. Rather at a SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats of that relationship. Here's the next role. Get your spouses. The four of you meet if it's two partners. Let your spouses read that document because you're not just partners with the person on the other side of the table. You will always be partners with a spouse. If your partner is working 24-7 and coming home with very little, that spouse is going to say you're in a bad deal unless the spouse understands what you're trying to accomplish as partners. So choose your partner and choose his spouse because you're getting both. The next thing about partnerships is same as like a marriage. You know, you have date night in a, in a marriage. You recommend date night. Partners, you've got to have date nights as well. Once a month, once every two months, whatever it may be, you have to go out and just have fun. Very, very important. Next thing about partners Business changes, environments change, industry changes, marriages change. You've got to always be honest and transparent. If you can't be, it's time to start dissolving that partnership. Because remember one thing, the concept of that a fish stinks from the head first, your employees always know how the partnership's going. And Often they know before you know. You've got to have a healthy partnership and relationship. And lastly, never forgive dishonesty or fraud. There's no second chances on that. When partners can't trust each other, no matter. I'll give you one quick example. We had a partner. We agreed while we are building the business that no matter what the flight, if it's 20 hours, you're still flying economy because we need to preserve cash flow. My partner used to buy the most expensive econ economy ticket because he knew he could upgrade that to business for free. And he said, I stuck to the law that we agreed. I said, no, you stuck to the letter, not the spirit. I never really trusted him after that. Okay, that's, that's fantastic. Thank you. So, so I think let's, let's, if we could get back to, I, I believe you've built, you're built now, you've, you've acquired the bank in the, the, um, in the, in the, in the and Barbados, probably not a bad place to, to live. Um, and then what's next? So, you know, one of the things I've always, um, I'm, uh, my partners will always tell you, Mike, you're a special forces type leader. What does that mean? My partner once said to me, you know, in the bank, you often show more respect to our receptionist and our cleaner than to our VPs of investment. And I said, the reason for that is, you're right, is that I want people to walk through my door to be the best that they can be. And we have a receptionist and a cleaner that they are the best possible receptionist and cleaner. And I have VPs that could be exceptional and are just complacently moderate. I can't tolerate that. But what I realized in that process, that's why you have to have a partner. Because any organization, as you grow, you're going to have mediocrity creep in. I can't work with people like that. This is not the way I treat myself. And therefore, I don't show them the respect that they demand, even though they're mediocre. So once you know that, then there's going to be a certain kind of person you can manage and employ. And your partners have to employ all the rest. Because you do need a certain amount of people that are just mediocre in your organization in order to get the critical mass. But at the same time, it doesn't stop you from trying to inspire and empower those that are mediocre. And as we build a bank, we were able to do that. After about, um, I don't know, five, six years in the bank, 
the bank grew to a certain uh, level with lots of meetings and lots of bureaucracy. And that doesn't work for me. I'm, in, I'm impatient with that. So I was able to come to arrangements with my partners where I stayed on as a vice chairman. I sold off a chunk of my equity to incoming great managers, one of whom is now a wonderful CEO that's built our bank through a really large organization. We, we have a bank in Canada, blah, 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 lots of employees, lots of assets, etc. And I went on my journey of doing more entrepreneurial things, always with partners, started a venture capital company, bought some bought real estate, did some private equity. All of this was based in Canada. So sort of the beginnings of my own family office. One of the things about what did I begin to realize that I do best is that I'm a projects person for great entrepreneurs. Great entrepreneurs are so busy in the thick of the woods that they're creating is they need someone to stand outside the forest and just be on their side. And I think it became clear to all of them, I've got your back, that's my job, and I've entirely got your back. And for that, they allowed me to come into their deal. So I landed up building my own uh, sort of personal balance sheet, <coughs> and my own little family office, and then I um, got bored. <laughs> and uh, we're lucky enough to visit Gibraltar in 2004, and I said to my wife, this is an awesome place. By that time, we had three boys, three sons, all of which were born at uh, times of different turmoil in my life where we made brave decisions. And I should just talk quickly for a second about choosing a partner. When you choose that spouse, my spouse is a very intelligent person with very different attributes to my own. But there's one thing. Her hand is always around my back. She is 100% there supporting for me. When times get tough, my wife puts her palm in, this, in the middle and what is center on my back. The small in my back and says, I'm here for you. I'm on your side. I never worry for one moment that our priorities for our family, for our community, and for each other are different. And therefore, I feel courageous to go and build opportunities because my wife's on my side. And that has been unbelievably important as a stabilizer for me and as a leveler for me, without a doubt. I would like to ask about that. How do you, how did you, how did you cultivate Besides that, you, you, you know, there's an idea that you get, you get very lucky. Um, is there advice that you can give to people to try to cultivate that kind of a relationship or to be able to articulate that need to their spouse? So I'm, uh, I'm Jewish and I believe in our God and I try to um, behave as a religious Jew. And people say you have this unshakable faith in God. Where did you get it from? And uh, I say it's because of my spouse and for a different reason. When I met my wife at the time, she really wasn't what I was looking for in almost any way. And yet somehow I kept on moving towards her and, and married her. And I realized why. It's because my God looked at me and said, Mike, Aaron, you're way too immature to know what you're looking for. I know what you're looking for. And I'm going to keep you in this relationship. And one day you're going to thank me. And that's exactly what happened because I can't think of another person other than Karen that could have allowed me to be who I am and have what I had in my life. But I had, wasn't mature enough to know what I was looking for. So that's why I'm thankful. So no advice to people know what they're looking for other than have someone who's got your back. Looks fade, money comes and goes. Have someone who has the same priorities as you and knows what you're looking for. The other thing is that Cora and I, we didn't define it, but we understood it. And later on, we defined it. We have these four, can I, my four principles, our four core family principles. And I think that's how we cultivate it because we knew that these four principles were important to us. And wherever we weren't moving together on a principle, we pulled each other back on track. The four principles in our family are when we open our eyes and get out of bed in the morning, it's, it's, but for the grace of God, go us. We woke up, God brought us back. Remember that. Number two is family over everything. You might not always like them, but you love, protect, nurture, and defend your family no matter what. That's no questions. The next one is we run our own races. We don't let friends, community, peer groups, 
tell us what's important and what we should be striving for, we run our own race. We play, just to choose a, a term, we play a, um, a football game and we win, but it was an easy game and we were average. The fact we won doesn't mean anything. We just weren't good enough ourselves. Remind ourselves of that. If we lose and we were at our best, well, then we're a winner. Other people don't define our race, nor its outcome. Our family, we define our own. And the fourth principle is on an extremely regular basis, make sure you can tell each other that we are net contributors. We contribute way more than we consume to our world, to our community, and to our environment. We don't take until we've given. Those four core principles are what my wife and my family live by, and that's how we keep our relationship strong. If one of us are off track on one of those core principles, it's not a hard conversation to have to remind ourselves of why we wake up in the morning and why we're there for each other. Okay, and 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 just as a as a side note, that uh, your wife is a a a, a for our perspective, completely tireless pillar of just about every community that that uh, that, that you guys have been, you know, and and so there's a uh, a, a tremendous uh, you know tremendous amount of awe and appreciation that obviously not only you and your, your, your boys have for her, but the uh, whatever communities that are blessed to have you guys. So that's- uh, I have something on my desk. I just can't find it right now, but I'll find it. It's basically my life lives according to a Ronald Reagan's uh, saying that he had on his White House desk. It says, it's amazing how much one can accomplish when one doesn't care who gets credit for it. And that's my wife. <laughs> no noise, just gets it done. Doesn't matter who gets credit for it, yeah. Outstanding. Um, okay, so so you're now now you're in you're about in to go to Gibraltar. We're in about Gibraltar. to go to Gibraltar. Oh, Gibraltar. Yeah, go My wife's sister was living there with her husband and this this um, the stepson had a bar mitzvah. We went there and I loved being in Europe in a little country. The concept of a shtetl, like a little village, and I said to my wife, "Let's go for a year." You know, we're living in Toronto. Business is very busy. Community leadership is busy let's just take a break from go for a year. And she said, I'm in. We rented our house out. I told my partners, we're going to Gibraltar. And we went to live in Gibraltar, this little 30,000 people, five square mile community. And it was wonderful. Had my three sons with me, four kids had to just go to a new school um, where most of the spoken language is Spanish. And um, beautiful, young, small Jewish community. We felt young as in 300 years old but just vibrant and energetic. And we met amazing people there. We landed up spending four years there. I landed up being in a business. My neighbor was a young person in his 30s who just became an extremely wealthy person. Through the success of his company, he asked me to be his gatekeeper. At first I said, no, I said, I'm going back in a year. We landed up being partners for, um, for four years, now I guess 2005. So, you know, 15 years later, we're still partners in a lot of things. He lives in London. I met amazing people. I uh, grew as a Jew. I watched my family. Gibraltar doesn't have shopping malls. You um, go to the store, you get your groceries, they send your bill at the end of the month. One time I was coming in through immigration, they have a proper board, of course. And the uh, immigration officer says, hello, Mr. Aaron. I said, how do you know me? Do I come through here that often? He says, no, because when I'm not working here, I'm a FedEx guy. I deliver you packages. And that was a beautiful thing. It was an important stage of my, my children's lives because instead of growing up in a commercial materialistic environment, they grew up in a place which is a little village where everyone takes care of each other and feels for each other. And thank God I really deeply believe that those qualities and ethics have continued with them through the, uh, the big world now, let's call it. And my fourth son was born there, beautiful little guy, a generous guy, as you well know, just turned 13. But then we realized the environment was, one, it was too small for me. I was feeling claustrophobic. And it was time to get our kids back to North America. We chose San Diego for our, my, my son, Liam, who's now 23, he was about 11, 12 years old. And I looked at him and I sang that fiddler song to him. I said, when did my little boy grow older? And he says, why have you been on your Blackberry, Dad? And it was like this thump in my stomach. I felt like I got hit with a sledgehammer. And I told my wife the next morning, I said, I am not going to have any of my sons say that again to me. 
And I went about telling all my different partners that I was changing my role. Um, and I was going reactive as opposed to proactive. And I had to go to an environment that was more peaceful, where I could be a better father, better husband, a better community person. And I gave them the option. I said, you have two options. Because I'm going to be reducing my role, either you can buy me out and, and I will leave, or you can decide to keep me in the way things are. And obviously, I won't be paid much because I'll be reactive, but I'll be available. Or you can reduce my stakes. I gave three options, and they, different ones chose different options. And I arrived in San Diego uh, 11 years ago. We chose San Diego because obviously the weather's fantastic. It's a small enough city where you, the city's more powerful than your personality, but at the same time, there are lots of opportunities, opportunities in the Jewish community, and that's why we chose San Diego. I'm just going to close my door with some noise outside and lawnmower one second. Okay, so yeah, so that's why we chose San Diego, and that was in, uh, 2008 when the whole world collapsed <laughs> for, for the first time. <laughs> so... And I, that's not really the end of the story, but 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 it's a great intro to what I was hoping to look at with you as spending now over three decades as an entrepreneur around the world and having seen a lot of, like you said, money comes, money goes, but there are times when a lot of money goes quickly. And um, we are having the opportunity to live through one of those times now, or at least that's the projection. And one of the things that that came out in a conversation that we had that I, I wanted to ask you more about and to elaborate upon is that in these sorts of environments, you see sort of who, you don't wanna say the real entrepreneurs are, but like the type of an entrepreneur that can make it through this kind of an environment. And it's well known that, you know, most, most or many of the massive fortunes were built kind of coming out of tremendous, tremendously difficult times. You know, you, you don't even have to go as far as you know, World War One, World War Two, but certainly those kinds of things. But then 2008, and you know, we assume you know this time as well. So maybe speak to me a little bit about what a what a wartime general, so to speak, would look like, or or what an entrepreneur has to develop within themselves to be able to not only weather this, but to come out of it successfully. So the one thing I'm just going to quickly mention one thing before I get into that, which I'm happy to is that in the last 10 years of being in San Diego, where I was more of a reactive partner, investing in others and you know, reactively managing my own balance sheet, I also saw the worst of good people. People who started off partners, honest, integrity, good track records. When the good times came, for those people 2010 forward, it's been good times. They evolved from fair to greedy. And the greediness started, I'm working like anything, and all those people who back me are playing golf or on the beach. They took away the value attribute of people taking the risk on them with their money. They put that value down to zero because I'm so good I could have gone anywhere else. And the process of stealing started with, oh, I'll charge a family trip to the project because I took a few phone calls. Huh, no one noticed. You know what? I'll use um, B contractors instead of A contractors because they'll kick me back part of the invoice. Well, when that happens then, the project now has inferior workers, takes longer, more expensive for inferior work. So the project becomes unprofitable. Then they're like, oh my gosh, I'm not gonna make any profit. So they start outright stealing. And I've seen that now four times in the last 10 years of large amounts from people that started off with good integrity, with good morals, but they had the wrong grounding. Their idol worship was their balance sheet, not their reputation, their name. So now when you're in bad times, someone who entered the bad times with the highest levels of everything, ethics, integrity, competence, leadership, morals, blah, blah, blah. The question is, what do they become when the going gets tough? We would love people, the foundation of who a person is, to be the constant. Their performance on that foundation would be a variable. Sometimes they do well, sometimes they do bad. But you would like the essence of who they are, the foundation, 
to be a fixed constant. I learned that's not true. If you're not grounded in something bigger than yourself and your values and ambitions are not bigger than yourself, your foundation of who you are is going to change depending on the times and you're going to be selfish in most cases and it turns out that you will most likely hurt those closest to you and those who backed you. So for all those people who are partners in companies now going through tough times, don't assume that the leaders and your partners prior to the, good time, prior to the bad times are the same person today. Take a deep, hard dive. Look at their personal financial circumstances. For all you know, in the last year or two, they upped their standard of living. They did a whole lot of things that are now going to put enormous pressure on them to take out of the business what's not rightfully theirs in order to keep that other decision alive. So please don't take for granted the person you're talking to today is the same human being you spoke to prior to Corona. That's level number one. Number two, when you look at your business now, what's a wartime general do? Wartime general is the person who goes out in the morning to the battlefield, meets the troops, sees what the battlefield looks like, then retreats to a tent with all the smart people around them and does an analysis of where are we now and where were we trying to get to. Not where were we yesterday or the day before. Where are we right now? And the last thing that a good wartime general would tolerate is blah, blah, blah. They want people to hit him hard or her hard. Where exactly where we are? Where are we failing? Where are we about to fail? Where are you not the right leader anymore? Where are you not the right officer for my army right now? Have the courage to tell me now. And one of two things will happen. One will sideline you as an officer to give you time to regather or will bring you resources to be effective under the current circumstances. Where exactly are we are right now? Great. Now we have that information. What resources are we lacking considering the current circumstances? Mike, I want to, if, if it's okay, I want to restate what, I, what I'm hearing you say and I want just to, to see if that's, that's what you were in fact saying. So... Uh, oftentimes, again, you spoke about how the personality of the entrepreneur will change often depending on how their situation has, has been. And right. so whereas they might have been seen as a brilliant entrepreneur that, you know, had a, you know, phenomenal returns and built something amazing, it could have been or it was in a lot of ways reflective more of the, the market or the economy than it was actually their brilliance. And so now... Oftentimes, what you're saying is now you're going to see who's going to get backed into a corner and wonder, oh, shoot, you know, maybe I don't know what I'm doing. And what you're saying is also, if that's you now, that you're, you've got your back against the wall and all of your brilliant strategies is not looking like it's going to work and the company might not be performing at the level that you think it's going to or projections are, are you know, been, been, been blown up, you, you should have the fortitude to be able to ask those that you work with to deliver the news honestly, and then to have sort of the faith in them that they'll give you the bandwidth you need to sort of recalibrate and to step up. Is that what you're saying? So that's a lot of what I'm saying. I'll add a little bit more, sort of more in context, is you know, we all know the concept of the emperor has no clothes or the pharaoh has no clothes. And the, in addition to that, when the waves are running, everyone's a great surfer. Many of the younger entrepreneurs have made it in the last 10 years when the waves have been running and they're pharaohs or emperors. Well, guess what? Now the waves are not running. Therefore, you bear and you have no clothes. And the question is, are you still impressive? So when your back's against the wall and you ask people for the heads up and the status quo and all that, absolutely all the things you said, but one additional thing is self-honesty. Am I still the right leader? Do I have it in me what it takes to turn this around? Because if I'm not, go to mentors, go to coaches, go to advisors, go to your parents' neighbor who has accomplished and say, I am at the low of lows and I don't think I'm the right person. Here's why. What do you think? Open your ears. Take advice and wisdom. Don't take from your buddies who are really good drinking partners or good party partners because the chances are they have no clue. 
go for wisdom and then come to a conclusion and and it's part of what i i love about and just uh, as as a bit of a backdrop i've been uh, bothering you to start to start telling your stories for for quite a while now um part of what i love about the I think the scope of your journey and the amount of time that you spent in it is that I'm assuming you've looked at failure quite a few times in your career. Oh, and yeah. What might be so terrifying for, you know, the, the newer, younger person that's had the benefit of the past 10 years is that failure to them is not something they've dealt with. So how does a person, if the conclusion comes out that, I'm not the guy to do this, or this isn't the company that's going to be the vehicle to financial freedom that I thought it would be. How do you look at failure? What does that look like? And how do you deal with it? So that's an incredibly important and difficult question to answer. Because sometimes, especially for a person that's in their 30s to 40s, these are critical opportunity years. The fact that they started and built a company speaks volumes about them. The decision they make now, and it might be to walk away from the company, to regather their energy, their strength, and to start again, clean, differently, or alternatively, to go get a job with a great institution and then excel there or start again. People don't want to hear that because what you're doing is you're taking away their identity. But... I've got to tell you, man, the best advice that those people can get is from someone who tells that to them straight. In some companies, there's a great opportunity now because they are that good and they've been hit hard by something they couldn't control and they have the ability and the resources to turn it around and see a strategic opportunity, maybe buy up other industries, maybe uh, diversify, maybe uh, think uh, laterally and start new, new divisions, new opportunities. Absolutely, those companies exist. And by the way, that kind of advice I should be getting from people with wisdom. But some of these companies, these entrepreneurs are going to spend the next two, three years turning these companies around. They're going to incur expensive debt. They're going to get diluted on the equity side. And some of their debt holders will have convertibles, which will further dilute them. And you know what will end up happening? They'll look around three to five years and say, wow. I spent three to five years working for somebody else and I came out with nothing from that, whereas I could have done it again. But people won't give them that advice because they don't want to offend them and they know it's not what they want to hear. So choose people that will tell you straight up, this is your reality. Because the world hasn't ended. It's just stumbled real hard. So great people will still have great entrepreneurs, maybe not now. Got to be honest with yourself. And by the way, when you go home, Talk openly to your partner, your spouse, wherever it may be, of what's going on in your life, but try not to bring that anxiety into the home because that spouse has got to fall asleep at night knowing where they are, but not being fearful. That's a challenge. So, so to, that, to that idea, how does one not have, or how, how have you seen the role of fear and for, for positive, how does a person manage that level of, of fear? <laughs> so, you know, f fear, uh, fear and greed, the two great motivators of the world, right? Let's talk about the fear right now because that seems to dominate the greed. Um, the fear side, I personally think that fear is a great motivator, but it also causes you to be foolish. I believe that in this time, your fear should cause you to double think every action you do. So let's take, you're a CEO now, right? You're about to sign checks. Hopefully as a good CEO, you've negotiated with your, all your creditors, your landlords, your insurance guys, your bankers, and you've got as much leeway as you possibly can. If you haven't, you should do that immediately. But now every check that you sign, every single dollar that you disperse should be for one of two reasons two reasons only. One is it's needed to keep those operations that we've concluded are essential going. Two is even though this dollar is not essential to today's operations, it's a strategic investment in my balance sheet 
building my brand and my goodwill. So either it pays what we need to do in terms of operations today, or two, it's a balance sheet investment and it's absolutely worthwhile. And if it doesn't fit into those two categories, you shouldn't be doing it. So fear should cause you to really quickly get into that mode of thinking. Then after that, I don't know, do things like meditate, exercise, whatever they are. Talk to people like yourself. Someone that puts fear in perspective. It's extremely important that people put fear in perspective. Fear is not an outcome. It's an emotion. Use that fear. Use your resources, the wisdom, the friends, your own employees, your own leaders to crystallize the best outcome possible that you can get. But it's not an outcome in itself. It's just an emotion. That's amazing. I, 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 I think what... If you, if you would indulge me that maybe we could have a part two of this interview at, at some point uh, in the near future, I hope. Um, out of curiosity, just a sort of a, a final question. If, if a person is the, you know, there's a, there's a discussion about everyone's trying to wait for the new, the new normal, you know, or, or is this the new normal or are we just going to get back to normal or, you know, and, and you speak to people and everyone's like projecting out like they, they know or can control the future what is, is the idea of wanting things to go back the way they are an intelligent way to look at things? Or even if, no matter what, like what, how do you, there's uncertainty. We don't know what's going to be. We don't know how it's going to look. So how does one set themselves up right now while there is uncertainty in order to have the best possible outcome? Besides the fact, like you said, to be very strategic and, and clear about how they're spending money and be clear about getting good advice. Is there anything else that you would recommend or that you are utilizing for yourself to take you through this period of time where, again, it could be that the shops are closed for another month. It could be that everything opens up in a month. We just, you know, no idea. So many things to answer. Rule number one, I tell all my friends, my family, everybody, in this time, there are a lot of good people whose back's against the wall and they're down on their knees. As a business person, if you've got dry powder or resources, you could really take advantage of that. I implore you all, don't kick a person when they're down on their knees. Because somewhere along the line, that's going to come back to haunt you. And it should if the person is a meaningful quality person, make a fair deal with them, take them back off their knees, lift them up. They'll have a partner for life and that'll be your reputation. Every one of us who have got some experience and some dry powder now, we could do so many parasite deals right this moment in time. I don't want that to be my Corona story. So look for people that are worthy, that you can lift up Make a deal with them that they might not have made with you before because they thought they were the emperors with clothing. And then you have a relationship for life. So that's in terms of behavior. In terms of the new normal, you know, thank God because we've lived in so many parts of the world and been involved in so many good communities. We have a lot of medical relationships at the highest possible level. A good friend of mine is the... Uh, head of infectious diseases at Yale. You know him, you taught his son. And he's a really good friend and he's kind of on all the media outlets and all that. And, and he, he says, I'll talk for 30 minutes as an expert because everybody tells me that's what I am and I guess I am. And then I'll talk for five minutes at the end and say, none of us know anything. We don't know if we're going back to work. We don't know if we're not going back to work. We don't know if there's a second string. We don't know any of this stuff. So knowing that full well, that there's no experts can tell me what the new normal is going to look like, then I think you've got to do what any, what any smart business person does. Make a new business plan for yourself personally, for your family, and for your business. And run scenarios. Scenario one is the world changes, and we don't know when we're going to open up, and it could be a year, it could be 10 days, it could be 30 days. Run four different scenarios. Do a sensitivity analysis and say, okay, under the four scenarios of when the world goes back to normal or relative the new normal, these are my different scenarios, and this is my outcomes. What resources do I need under each of these different scenarios? Now assign a probability to each of those scenarios. 
Scenario three is most probable. I'll give it a 40% probability. Scenario one is 2% probability. Then get a weighted average outcome and say, okay, this is potentially what my next six months look like. Where am I short on resources? Is it people? Think about this. Prior to going to Corona, you had almost zero unemployment. So the best people weren't coming to work for you. So you took mediocre people. You had no choice. Guess what? You cannot get the best people. They're looking for jobs with companies that have got a future. Get great people. Okay. I'm going to be short of cash. I need money. I need to raise money. Well, most people, I don't want to raise any equity now because my valuation is so low. Well, guess what? For a good reason. Unless you can present those scenarios and someone says, I'm prepared to back you, it might not be at the ideal valuation. Then decide, are they good partners? Are they good and bad time partners? Because you know, if they are, you can negotiate a deal that says, if the world changes and in a year's time, we're way beyond projections, I want to claw back up some equity. And that person's going to say, you got it. If they just want to massacre you now in valuation and control your board, run for the hills. You never marry a person like that. Why would you take him in as an equity partner? And then on the debt side, some of you are going to have to take hard money debt. It's going to come with crushing terms, crushing foreclosure terms and all that. If you do have to do that, and if you have no choice, you've got to deeply think about whether your business, if the only way you can survive is by parasite hard money lending, you have to think whether you can save that business. Because I can tell you now, I know enough guys in that industry, I don't like them, but they are a necessary part of the industry apparently. They will crush you and they will bring in their own management team. It's just a fact. Unless you are excellent. Same with private equity guys now. Unless you are exceptional, they are going to replace you. Just a matter of time. So you decide, do you want their money or not? The decision might be, I have no choice. You take it then. Just know the consequences. But don't, no one should get caught up in imagining an optimism that's not founded on facts. And the only way you can know if it's founded on facts, bounce it off wise people. Outstanding. Mike, the, the, I, think, I think you will have, I think this is the longest interview and I kind of feel like we're just getting started. So um, I, I, from the bottom of my heart, I appreciate you sharing your experience, your thoughts, your insights. And I very much wish, hopefully we'll be able to do this, uh, do this again. So thank you so much for the time. Always a pleasure. I have the utmost admiration and respect for you. And I think any entrepreneur who hires you to be their coach for their business and their lives or for family members, probably the best decision they're going to make, especially in these times. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Mike. There you have it, folks. Another inspiring episode. If you enjoyed this, I ask you to please share this with your friends and to like us over on Rabbi Rupp through Facebook or on YouTube. And the more that we're able to get these important messages out, the more that we can really make an impact in the world. So I encourage you, please, to stay tuned. Uh, we have a ton of amazing speakers coming up and also to tell your friends about it. Thank you very much.